back to the program. I'm Jeff Shatner. With all the technology around today, doctors still often fail to make the right diagnosis, usually not due to any failure of knowledge or smarts, but because diagnostics is often as much art as science. As such, it requires an almost intuitive and or subtle understanding of the patient, his or her circumstances, and sometimes as much about what's not said as what's voiced by the patient. We're going to talk about this today with two distinguished guests, Dr. Saul Wiener and Dr. Alan Schwartz. Together, they're the authors of a new book entitled Listening for What Matters, Avoiding Contextual Errors in Healthcare. Dr. Wiener, Dr. Schwartz, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's great to have you here. Saul, I want to start with you a little bit about how this study came to be, how you began to do the research and the work in this area. Well, I'm a, I'm a physician. I'm a pediatrician and an internist, so I take care of pretty much everybody. And I've also been teaching medical students and residents for many, many years. And uh, so this, this idea goes back about 12, 15 years. And uh, one of the things I started to notice when I was working with medical students and residents is that they were getting better and better at the science-based aspect of decision-making, what people often refer to as evidence-based medicine. So they kind of always knew what the latest clinical study showed or where to find that information and, and what, uh, what the best you know, recommended guideline was for a condition. And that's all important. But I also started to discover that when they would present a patient to me, tell me about a patient they'd just seen before I went in the room to see the patient myself, that there was something missing, uh, that there was sort of an element of the story that they didn't um, articulate. Uh, and I, one, one particular sentinel example was a, a woman who had come in for um, uh, ob- obesity surgery. She was overweight. She had tried to lose weight uh, using a variety of conservative measures, had been in a diet program, uh, exercise, all that sort of thing. It had been referred to a surgeon for bariatric surgery. And um, I was asked, along with my resident, to see if she was ready to go to surgery. And the resident had evaluated her and said, you know, she, I think she's in terrific shape. Uh, she's really looking forward to taking better care of her son when she loses weight. Um, her EKG is fine. Um, she meets all the criteria to go to the operating room, so I think she's cleared. And when I went in to see this woman, I asked her, well, you know, what's going on with your son? And it turned out that this woman was taking care of a, a young man, her son, who was in his 20s, who was actually dying of uh, muscular dystrophy. And she was really uh, a critical person in lifting him and bathing him. And it became pretty clear that for her to go to surgery at this particular time would not allow her to do those things. And she really hadn't thought about that. She had been so focused on the idea that if she lost weight, she'd be in better shape that she didn't realize she couldn't even lift somebody for 40 days after having surgery or she could tear open her abdominal wound. And so when we had that conversation, it became very clear that surgery would be a big mistake, even though it was the recommended next step for her condition. And that that particular case got me thinking, and I, I went down a path that ultimately led me to working with Alan, who's a, an outstanding research methodologist. And we started looking at hundreds and then thousands of cases like this and started to realize that so much of healthcare um, hinges on picking up on these life factors. Alan, is this a more modern phenomenon because of the pressures on healthcare today, the time pressures, the amount of time that doctors get to spend with patients, the fact that there isn't sometimes a long history with that particular patient, or is this something that has been part of of medicine for some time? Well, that's a great question. Um, And and one of the answers we don't know because until now, no one has really uh, studied it the way we have. No one's actually looked at what goes on between uh, the doctor and the patient, and tried to identify this uh, problem. But we suspect that, that in the days when um, doctors knew their patients better because uh, people didn't change doctors as frequently, 
um, and doctors might have uh, had more time to get to know their patients, um, some of these questions about the individual life circumstances of a patient um, would have already been known to the physician, and then those are uh, harder to get today. Is there an element to this that really also reflects who becomes doctors today, Saul? I uh, I think that's a, a great question that um, uh, not just uh, you or, or we have been asking. Um, admissions committees at medical schools have been struggling to figure out how they can admit the right people. Um, you know, there's a real tendency to admit people with high test scores. Um, and it reminds me of a cartoon in The New Yorker where a woman comes in to talk to the doctor and on the back of, you know, his desk, there's all these diplomas hanging on the wall. And, you know, he's looking at her and he's saying, can you please rephrase that in the form of a multiple choice question? Um, and I think that, you know, uh, we, we, there is a real desire among admissions committees to, um, to find those students who are more likely to have some of these skills. But I do think that even if you're successful at, at finding those students, this is still something that needs to be developed, um, regardless of, of the talent of the individual coming into into the into the program is it something either of you is it something that can be taught Alan start with you so um, we think uh, some aspects of it certainly can um, so there are there are system issues that make it hard uh, for doctors to, to find out about their patients and do the right thing but there's also a skill component to this and it's more than just um, being a, a nice person or having a good bedside manner. Um, so we've done um, several kinds of um, studies where we've looked at ways that we could teach this and then whether we could get um, the, uh, the physicians that we're teaching to improve. And, and talk a little bit about s- some of the methods that, that have to go into that to basically teach someone to listen in a way. Well, um uh, we have done two types of research uh, in terms of the methods we've used, and I'll, I'll start initially, and then Alan can dig deeper because he's the expert in methodology, but we started by hiring a team of actors to work as undercover patients, and we sent them into um, many, many practices um, where physicians thought at the time they were seeing a real patient, but in fact, it was an actor who was portraying a script, and that actor was trained to drop clues that something was going on in their life that needed to be addressed. It was critical, so it might be somebody coming in with a complaint that their asthma is getting worse, and they would say, you know, boy, doc, it's been really tough since I've lost my job. And the purpose of the case was to see if the doctor would discover that the patient was uninsured and couldn't afford their medicine anymore. And when we sent that case into about 50 physicians, we found that some of them, uh, unfortunately less than half, would pick up on it. But most of them would, you know, kind of... uh, maybe acknowledge it. They would say, you know, I'm sorry, there's a tough job market. And then they would just be like, well, you know, do you have any allergies? And they just move on. And a lot of times they were sort of focused on the computer and getting the data they needed into the computer. A, a smaller number would pick up on that and say, well, tell me about that. You know, how has it been tough? Are you having trouble paying for your medicines? And so we have spent um, years, uh, about 10 years or so, doing this type of work, first with fake patients, and then by inviting over a thousand patients to carry concealed audio recorders into their visits and listening to those audio recordings, and then really looking for whether physicians are picking up on these clues and pursuing them. And so we've kind of gotten a mountain of data from doing that kind of work. Um, but um, that's a kind of methodology that we've used. And what we found is that, first of all, physicians tend to miss this stuff a lot. And secondly, um, that when they do get it right, um, patients do better. So with our real patients, we followed them for up to nine months after the uh, audio recorded visit. And we found that, in fact, those patients where the doctor picked up on these contextual issues, they were more likely to do better. The, the diabetes that was out of control was more likely to come under the control or the asthma or whatever it was. Um, and we also found that costs were down. 
that when physicians miss this stuff and they don't pick up on the life context, they're more likely to order all kinds of tests because they don't really know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Alan? Well, and when it comes to the, the question of how would you um, help physicians get better at this, um, so one of the things that, that we've been doing that, that's been quite effective is um, sharing these results uh, directly with the physicians and the other people involved in, in the care team. Um, not only, you know, in what proportion of your patients did you ask about these kind of contextual things or did you did you incorporate them into your treatment plan, but also giving them specific examples. Oh, you, your team saw a patient last month and uh, did a really good job and here's why, or your, your team saw a patient last month and we think you missed something and here's why. And what we hear from, from the physicians and the other clinical people is that they really value um, this kind of feedback um, on their own performance. They want to get better because they want their patients to get better. Can science be brought into this part of the process as well? Are there algorithms that can evolve that really teach doctors to ask the right questions, Saul? You know, um, we've wrestled with that issue. Um, Yes and no. So we came up with a list of initially 10 and now 12 kind of, we call them domains of context that we um, teach physicians to think about when they're with a patient. Um, they're things like, does that person have a financial problem? Does they, do they have competing responsibilities? Have they lost their social support? So it's sort of a list of things that can happen in a person's life that could account for why something in their healthcare has gone awry. And we found that, you know, doctors love lists. You know, we, when you go to medical school, you're taught lists for everything. We call it the differential diagnosis. And so we found that those lists, and there's research to show that giving people lists can help them um, kind of kind of prime them to ask the right questions. But I think it's important to understand that this is more than just lists. This is really about widening the angle of the lens that physicians use when they think about what they do. So if you're a doctor and somebody says, boy, it's been tough since I've lost my job, do you think of that comment as data or do you think of that as a distraction? You know, if somebody says my abdomen is hurting me, a doctor knows that that's data. They need to ask about that. But if they say that I've lost my job, well, is that data? And we think it's incredibly important data and we know that. And so the question is, is teaching uh, young physicians, really starting on day one of medical school, to have that wider angle lens. Do we need to create another tier in the medical profession that, that almost precedes the, the doctor visit itself, somebody that is a kind of gatekeeper for this kind of information? Yeah, we've talked about that as well, um, as sort of professional contextualizer. <laughs> Uh, and um, we've actually we've done some work um, looking at uh, whether you could uh, help patients uh, in advance of their visit uh, try to recognize uh, things in their life that they might not have realized are affecting their health care and whether they could bring that in to the physician. And we've also done some work looking at um, a company that provides uh, telephone health assistance. Uh, people call uh, their health assistant and tell them what's going on and the health assistant is responsible for uh, doing whatever is necessary to get this person care or whatever they need. Um, and we've looked a little bit at, at how effective they can be um, in terms of um, context. But we don't think any of those are really going to be a substitute for the physician. Um, the relationship with the physician um, is, is of such primary importance that even if all of these things happen beforehand, if the patient gets to the physician and the physician doesn't pick it up, or doesn't take advantage of of that work that's been done before, um, the system is still going to fall down. 
In the research that, that you did, Saul, was there any difference between the way men or women doctors heard this information? Well, we did kind of look at that a little bit. So what I will tell you is when we, for example, when we sent in those fake patients, we sent them to uh, on about 400 visits, and then the real patients went to um, an even larger group. Um, we were not specifically designing those studies to look at, for example, gender differences among physicians, but we did analyze it anyway. Um, we did not find a difference between um, the performance of women doctors versus men doctors, although I will say that our study was not designed, and the technical word here would be powered, was not powered to detect small differences. Um, you know, whenever you design a research study, you have to start at the beginning by saying, what do I want to design my study to be most powerful to detect? And uh, well, I will say, for instance, that when we did the, the fake um, part of this fake actor, you know, fake patient study, we actually had an African-American and a white actor play um, the same case for each case. So for every case, we had an African-American and a white actor go in, uh, portray exactly the same clinical problems, say the same things, to look at whether doctors interacted differently with, with black versus white patients when seeing exactly the same clinical case. Um, interestingly, we didn't find a different error rate there either. Um, we also looked at whether a female versus a male doctor was more likely to get the case right or wrong. And again, we didn't see a pattern there. Um, you know, some doctors were more likely to get cases right um, than others, but it wasn't a uh, it wasn't uh, wasn't associated with either the race um, of the patient uh, or the gender of the physician in 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 the sample size that we worked with. Mm -hmm. What was the factor, Alan, that most set the diagnosis awry? What was the one factor that contributed most to getting it wrong? I think you know we talk in in the book about um, several different factors, but I think if I had to pick one, um, it's probably a certain. Um, and, and this is often computer-driven um, rigidity in the approach to the to the interview. If the physician you know, comes into the the encounter, the interview with the patient, and knows that they've got in their mind uh, they have to get through this checklist of questions that they need to ask, um, perhaps because they have to type it into the computer so they can bill for the visit, and, and they know that you know they got to be sure they do all of these things. Um, they often you know are, are really focused on getting those things done and not fully engaging with the patient and seeing where this patient might need help that's not necessarily on their list of questions. So what are the cost implications of this? Oh, um, uh, very significant. We actually looked at that in a very unusual way. So when we sent in, and I'll tell you the number in a minute, but when we sent in these fake patients, um, what we got to do was wait until the doctor put in their orders um, for what tests and, and treatments they wanted to do before we told the doctor that was a fake patient. So the doctors knew that some of their patients were going to be fake. They didn't know which ones, and they agreed that we wouldn't tell them until after they had completed their note and their orders. So we knew what they would do if they had it been a real patient. And so we could actually compute the cost of all the unnecessary tests they ordered and treatment. So, for instance, we had one guy who came in with a story that he was losing weight, um, um, uh, unexplained weight loss, and he was an older guy, and he basically gave four hints that he was homeless and did not have adequate access to food. And when the physicians picked up on that, 
they didn't order a lot of unnecessary tests. They called in social work. They would usually get this person something like Meals on Wheels or something. Basically, uh, the, the basic things you'd want to do when you know that somebody is food insecure. When they didn't pick up on that, they would think, oh, my God, this guy could have cancer. We're going to have to do a colonoscopy and a CT scan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they would order all kinds of tests. And so with a number of cases, we added up all of those costs using Medicare cost data. And actually over um, the, I think the uh, 399 cases, um, uh, I believe it was, was it, um, Alan, $174,000 of excess costs? That's right. Yeah. So you, you, and now what I should tell you is obviously you have to be careful about extrapolating that um, because it all depends on the case itself, right? So some cases are going to prompt doctors um, to order more unnecessary tests than others. But we, we picked common scenarios, things like unexplained weight loss or loss of control of a chronic condition or loss of diabetes control, these kinds of things. And what we found is that when doctors missed the context, um, they didn't really know what was going on, and that tends to trigger lots of test ordering. And when we add that up, it was thousands and thousands of dollars. What do we learn, for both of you, start with Alan, what do we learn by looking at the doctors that got it right most often, the set of skills that they brought to it, the talents that they had, what do we learn from that? Well, you know, one of the things that, that I think we learned, so first I'll tell you what, what we, a negative thing, if you like, that's something we didn't learn. We thought going into this that a lot of that would depend on uh, how much time the doctor spends with the patient. You know, we're all used to now these quite short doctor visits. Um, it turned out when we when we looked at um, the, the encounters that we had, um, it didn't matter. Uh, it didn't matter whether the visit was long or the visit was short. So we know that physicians can do this kind of contextual care without it taking much extra time or any extra time beyond um, whatever they would normally be doing. So we know it's, it's not about that. Um, and it does seem to be about a certain um, cognitive flexibility in wanting to engage with the patient, to listen to what they're saying, and to try to think about how could that thing that's going on in this patient's life, how could that be having an effect on their health? The physician is always focused on how am I going to get this person better, but they have to realize that getting this person better may be more than just let's take a blood measurement and let's find out you know what values are out of whack. So, was there any resentment from any doctors about this approach? You know, we were very concerned about that going into it. I mean, if you think about it, who wouldn't be worried about mm -hmm. being secretly audio recorded and not knowing which of your patients is fake or which of your real patients are audio recording you? I mean, that's a setup for making anyone paranoid, right? right. Um, and um, so we took an intense, immense care to build trust and, and, and uh, to help the doctors understand what we wanted to do. And believe it or not, they were terrific. Um, we, um, what we did is we, first of all, guaranteed them that their names would be removed from the data. Um, the data would be de-identified. All the transcripts of the calls would have neither the name of the doctor nor the patient. Um, and that the data would never be used in a way that could hurt them. It would never go to their bosses, um, to the administrators. Um, it would always be aggregated. So, and also, so by, by providing all of those protections, and actually we did most of this work with federal grant money, so we were actually able to pay for the visits as if they'd been real visits, so the doctors didn't lose revenue. Once they understood that there was no cost to them and that this was entirely about helping them get better 
better at what they do. Um, they were great. Uh, we had tremendous support, um, and uh, and I have to say that um, you know that was very uh, reassuring. I think it showed that doctors, and quite honestly, doctors are fed up with a lot of the meaningless stuff they get measured on. Um, so when they're getting measured on something like, are you really getting to know your patient and identifying their personal needs? I think they get that. You know, m- most of them understand the significance of that, and and so we've had a pretty good experience. Does it make a difference whether we're talking about general practitioners and internists on the one hand or specialists on the other? Well, we've only studied um, uh, uh, general doctors um, only because that's kind of what I am and mm-hmm. the, that's the, where we have the largest pool of people in one place. You know, primary care practices tend to be really big. Um, I would say the principles we're discussing um, are absolutely as important for a specialist. Um, you know, in the case I gave you, if the surgeon had picked up on the fact that this woman's desire to lose weight was actually based on um, a misunderstanding about what the post-surgical period would be like, um, we wouldn't have had to. So I think that th- what we're talking about is applicable to all healthcare encounters. Um, our research has focused on primary care. Mm-hmm. And finally, talk a little bit about how this research is now being used, how it might be incorporated. So in two ways. Um, One thing Alan and I are doing is we've been working with um, several large groups of physicians um, to make this quality improvement. So we invite patients to audio record their visits, and then we feed that data. We remove identifiers, of course, names of doctors and patients, and we identify both the best and the worst of care, um, cases where doctors did a great job picking up on this. And by the way, we've now expanded it. So we're not just uh, um, audio recording doctors. We're handing the audio recorder to patients so they can um, audio record the encounter with the front desk clerk, the woman who ta- the woman or man who takes their vitals, um, uh, the pharmacist, everything, and then we provide we listen to that and we have a system for coding it. Our team does to pick up on both best and worst examples, and then we actually feed that data back to these individual providers and teams um, so they can understand how they're doing. It's like holding a mirror up to them. And our goal there is to drive improvement. So one is by make and you know we really think that there is a need for this in healthcare right now. Healthcare is not being observed. It's all over the country. We're, we're spending trillions on healthcare, but most of the time it's all evaluated based on what's in a chart or what's in claims data. We're saying no, this is the way, there's the only way, it's just like mystery shopping in retail. So we're, we're trying to measure it through this type of direct observation and use that to improve care. Dr. Saul Wiener, Dr. Alan Schwartz, their book is Listening for What Matters, Avoiding Contextual Errors in Healthcare. It's just out from Oxford University Press. Thank you both so much for spending time with us. Well, thanks Thank for your interest. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.